from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Eileen Maddox on April 1st, 2019. Eileen is the author of 1844, Convergence and Prophecy for Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the Baha'i Faith. It's an interesting work that describes the millennial movement, and in particular the Millerite movement, in the 19th century, in which Christians had calculated the return of Christ around 1843 and 1844. When Christ didn't return as they expected, the movement splintered and dissipated. Unbeknownst to these Adventists, a new messenger of God did appear at that time, but not in the Western Hemisphere, but in the Middle East. We talk about this fascinating phenomenon in the interview. I started the interview by asking Eileen where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up in the 40s and 50s in southeast Maine, the Auburn-Lewiston area. I grew up in the Universalist Church of Auburn, Maine, but that's a story because my mother was raised in the Advent Christian Church, which was a post-Millerite church. Her father, my grandfather, was a Millerite or a spiritual descendant of the Millerites. So I was born into this, so to speak, because my mother was raised in it. And then she did her own Bible studies and was a very, really remarkable woman in many ways. And she became a liberal Protestant. And we were raised in the Universalist Church. And that was back in the day before the Unitarian Church and the Universalist Church merged. So, Eileen, I didn't realize that those were two separate churches at one time. Can you provide me with a distinction between the two before they merged? Well, the Unitarian Church had always been about what it is today, more of an intellectual gathering group than a church, whereas the Universalist Church was the most liberal of what I would call the theological Christian Protestants that still believed in Jesus and the Bible. But when I was growing up, they had moved so far away from that that there really wasn't much difference. And that's why the UUs didn't merge, because growing up, I learned very little about Jesus. But fortunately, my mother was the high school Bible teacher in the Universalist Church. So at least my mother introduced me to Bible history, and she talked a lot about Bible history with me at home. So I did get that wonderful education from her. Then did you carry this religious tradition on through high school and, and into adulthood? The short answer is no. In my early adulthood, 20s, 30s, 
after exploring various Christian churches, I wasn't getting the answers to the questions I had. And I turned to the New Age movement, which is basically, oh, let's just say anything goes. And to me, it was the metaphysical approach to various theological subjects that interested me. And I was active in the New Age movement for many years while I was living in Connecticut. But in time, that also really did not answer my questions. It was closer, but it wasn't quite it. And so what was your spiritual path that ultimately led you to the Baha'i faith? Well, it was rather simple. I had prospered in the New Age movement and founded a New Age company with a magazine and some audio tapes. Remember the days of audio tapes? <laughs> no PODs back then. And I threw my heart into it and a lot of various New Age activities. And then I suffered a hostile takeover of my company. And I went into a walking spiritual and mental breakdown. And fortunately, I had a very good therapist who was a Baha'i. At first, I didn't want to know anything about it because I was so disillusioned with anybody who talked about spiritual matters. Uh, but then when I started to investigate the Baha'i faith for myself, it was like, oh, yes, of course, this makes perfect sense. Finally, something makes sense. I didn't have to go to one particular religion or source to find the quote-unquote truth, because the Baha'i faith explained how a succession of prophets of God had come to humanity in many places and many times throughout human history, and they all brought the same spiritual verities, the things that are true spiritually from time immemorial, but they each also brought a new set of laws for the people of that time and place. And so Buddha and Krishna and Moses and Abraham and Muhammad and Jesus, no longer did one have to make the choice, understanding that they all brought the truth for their times. And then, of course, when I discovered Baha'u'llah, everything just fell into place. And I knew I didn't have to be a seeker and searcher any longer, only within the faith, always trying to learn more and more. So Baha'u'llah being the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Yes, exactly. So I'm speaking with Eileen Maddox, author of the book 1844, Convergence in Prophecy for Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the Baha'i Faith. So Eileen, why don't we get into talking about your book? First of all, what inspired you to write this book? I might guess that it had something to do with your religious background. Yes, it certainly did. Well, a friend of mine, Cyrus Parvini, produced a feature movie on Millerism. He had a website that I went on to, and I saw that he badly needed an editor. Well, I'm an editor, so I got in touch with him, and I worked with him 
on various editing and writing projects to promote his movie. The Miller Prediction is the name of his movie, and it's available for anyone to watch free on YouTube. And then for his website, I wrote a series of articles on Millerism. And then one day, a friend of mine looked at them, and she says, Eileen, you have a book there. Oh, yes, I did. And being a descendant of Millerites, uh, it just felt very fitting for me to flesh out the articles that I had written and convert them into this book. Once I got started, I felt like the whole project was inspired. No one had written a book on this subject. And I had researched all the books out there and no one had looked at what was happening in Judaism and Christianity and Islam and their various prophecies leading up to the Baha'i faith and how it all worked in with the Millerite movement. And when something hasn't been done, well, you know, someone has to do it. So it ends up being me or whoever has the idea. And I loved it. It was a long process, but I loved working on it. So I'm speaking with Eileen Maddox, author of the book 1844, Convergence in Prophecy for Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the Baha'i Faith. So Eileen, why don't you tell folks what you found in regards to this convergence in prophecy between these four religious movements? Okay, I'll give it to you. One, two, three, four. And then at various points, we can backtrack and take each one separately. In the year 1844, Christians in the West, the Millerites, were expecting the literal return of Christ and the beginning of the millennium. They were expecting the end times because of a lot of prophecies in the Bible added up to the year 1844. In Judaism, the prophet Daniel, several of his prophecies pinpointed the year 1844. Islam, unknown to most of us in the West, and something I hadn't been aware of, also had many of its own prophecies pointing to the year 1844 and the return of their, what they call him the hidden imam or the 12th imam who would bring in the judgment day. And then, of course, in 1844, the Bab, the first prophet of the Baha'i faith, declared his station and mission in what was then Persia. So here you had four religions all saying the same thing. And so in this book, I have tried to bring all four of these prophetic streams together. I'm speaking with Eileen Maddox, author of the book 1844, Convergence in Prophecy for Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the Baha'i Faith. So Eileen, why don't we start first with Millerism? Okay, that would be good. This is in the West, of course, in New England. William Miller 
the movement was certainly not contained to him, but it took his name, Millerism. He was born in the 1780s, the oldest of 16 children, to a farm family. He was born in Vermont, and then the family moved to New York State. He had minimal formal education or education of any sort. He could only go to school three months a year. That's the way it was back then. But he had a very intelligent mind. He was an avid reader, and he read every book he could put his hands on. He had been raised a devout Baptist, but when he reached adulthood, he became a deist. He was drawn to the writings of Voltaire, Thomas Paine, ben Benjamin Franklin, who believed that, yes, God created the world, but then he had nothing more to do with it, and nothing happened for humanity after we die. And so he spent many years in the deist movement. But he was increasingly uncomfortable with deism. And by 1816, he was married, he had children, and he took his family to the Baptist church every Sunday, although he didn't consider himself a Christian. But while he was giving a talk in church, he had an inner vision of a, quote, savior. Not Jesus, per se, but savior, which he interpreted to be Jesus. And from then on, he was totally comforted. He knew that he could come to know the Savior. And the only two books he read from then until the end of his life was the Bible and Cruden's Concordance. He was especially interested in the biblical prophecies. And epiphany that he had, suddenly the character of the Savior was vividly impressed upon my mind it seemed that there might be a being so good and compassionate as to himself atone for our transgressions and thereby save us from suffering the penalty of sin. I immediately felt how lovely such a being must be and imagined that I could cast myself into the arms of and trust in the mercy of such a one. He spent the rest of his life on this path. Now, he was a farmer himself, a biblical scholar, Sunday school teacher, and community leader, and all his spare time was spent studying the Bible. And he was not alone in this. In the 1820s, 1830s, in the U.S. and in England, there were many biblical scholars who were avidly searching the Bible and looking for hints for the second coming of Jesus. And then he started receiving the message, quote, go and tell the world, end quote. Well, Miller was a humble man, a reasonably poor speaker, and he did not want to go anywhere and speak publicly. And so he gave an ultimatum to God about this message. And that ultimatum was, if I receive a request in half an hour, okay, I'll go speak. 
if that doesn't happen, the answer is no. Well, <laughs> wouldn't you know, within half an hour, his nephew came riding in. He asked his uncle, William Miller, our minister is going to be gone this next Sunday. Could you please come to Dresden and speak in his stead? Well, Miller was caught, and that was the beginning. His sermons were two hours long. He was plodding, ungrammatical, but he was very well received. And one invitation led to another. One contact among clergy led to another. And the Millerite Adventist movement swept the Northeast with newspapers and camp meetings. And at its peak, there were about 200 clergy who were preaching the end days and the return of Jesus. So at that point, had he marked a date or a year? Yes, and he did it. And I should say they did it because uh, this was not exclusively Miller's. Many scholars were perusing the book of Daniel. And what it came down to was Daniel's prophecy about the 2,300 years. Now, in biblical accounting, a day equals a year. So when the, the Bible, or, or I should say a prophecy in the Bible, mentions days, you convert it to years. One day for a year, and there are 360 days to a year. And this 2,300 days, years prophecy went like this. It was a vision that Daniel had. It was a long vision. I'm only going to read a few sentences. And it's from Daniel 8, chapter 13, 14. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and the truth was thrown to the ground. And it's talking about the end days here. The vision continued as Daniel heard a holy one ask that eternal question, when? Then I heard a holy one speaking. And he said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. So biblical scholars of that time believed that Jesus, of course, would reconsecrate, and it would be in 2,300 years. So where do you start counting? The conventional time to start counting was in 457 B.C. That was the year that the Persian king Artaxerxes in the post-exilic years gave permission to the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem. And if you add 457 to 2,300, and remember, you're changing millennia there, you come out to the year 1844. 
So in other words, you subtract the twenty the uh, exactly. the BC yeah the BC That's, term to yes. the AD term yeah yes exactly or that's the, the total, other way yeah. to do it right. yeah and right. subtract and there was also another one that dealt with the 1260 days and years and i'll read just a few sentences from this it has a real zinger at the end this is another prophecy that daniel had I mean another vision that Daniel had and it's the 12th chapter of Daniel verses 5 through 10 the whole thing and the punchlines are I heard but I did not understand so I asked my Lord what will be the outcome of all this be in other words the outcome of the vision that he had had he replied go your way Daniel because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. That's very interesting, because what it meant was that the understanding of many of Daniel's prophecies could not be understood until after 1844. And here we had, in the 1830s and 40s, all these biblical scholars trying to understand it and then he goes on to say that each day of the father is equivalent to one year and each year consists of 12 months thus three and a half years makes 42 months and 42 months is 1260 days and each day in the bible is equivalent to one year and it is in the very year 1260 from the immigration of Muhammad, according to the Muslim calendar, from Mecca to Medina, to 1844, when the Bab, the herald of Baha'u'llah, revealed his mission. So let me summarize it uh, maybe in a different way. So yes. the 1260 years from the moment that Muhammad did the Hajira from Mecca to Medina to 1260 years in the Islamic calendar. That's equivalent to the date 1844 in the Gregorian calendar. That is correct. But don't try to do this at home yourself. <laughs> according to the, it's according to the lunar calendar. Right. Uh, because that's what Islam used. But right. yes, you have it correctly. Due to time, why don't we fast forward to the year 1844 and what happened? Well, actually, Miller believed it would happen sometime in 1843 through March 1844, the return of Jesus, and it didn't. So they, the scholars went back to the Bible, and several other dates were issued. And then the final date that they came up with was in October 1844. 44. And I believe it was the Day of Atonement in October of that year, according to an obscure Jewish calendar. And that was the day when uh, the Millerites were all agreed that Jesus would come. And of course, the short story was the next day came after that, and the return had not happened. In the way, 
that the Millerites had been expecting it to. However, uh, kind of the joke among Baha'is is Miller had the right date. He simply had the wrong continent because uh, in 1844, the return of the essence of Christ, the spirituality of Christ, had returned in Persia in the beginning of the Baha'i era. And you know what? Even Jesus used that kind of thinking when it came to the return of Elijah by yes. saying that, you know, John the Baptist is the return of Elijah. And so Jesus really set up the concept of the return being not a physical person replicating a historical figure, but the essence of that figure returning. Yes, he did. At the transfiguration, which was witnessed by three of his disciples, of course, Jesus met with Elijah and Moses, I believe. But don't quote me if I'm wrong. And then when walking down the mountain afterwards, his disciples asked, well, what about John the Baptist? Wasn't he the return of Elijah? No. And Jesus explained he was the return of the essence. And you explained it beautifully, so I won't say anything more on that. So what did the Millerites, what did they decide to do when they didn't realize to look somewhere around the world rather than in the United States for this return? Mm. Well, to put it in today's wordage, they were not happy campers. The movement split into many, many factions. Miller himself never lost his faith, never. He just figured they had the date wrong and that it would happen. Many Millerites fell out of the movement and went back to their churches. A lot of, well, shall we say, ambitious people looking for leadership, founded their own churches in a lot of fairly, shall we say, unique theologies took off at that time. The mainstream Millerites, led by Miller and many who were faithful with him, did hold a conference in Albany, New York, the next year, and they did try to set everything right, but the movement simply fell apart, and it never came together again. And the word Adventist took on many different meanings, except they all agreed that Jesus would come again. Now, what's so interesting is, traditionally, in Christianity, traditional Christianity, Jesus was expected to return, yes, but post-millennial, meaning after humanity had created a thousand years of peace and justice on earth. Whereas this emerging Adventist movement took that traditional belief, turned it upside down, and said that Jesus would come premillennial, meaning he would be the end of days, he would bring the judgment day, and Jesus would clean up the earth and convert it into a thousand years of the peace. So 
that was very important to Christian theology from then on out. And so there's a number of uh, Christian denominations today. Their birth is from the Millerites. Yes, yes. Jehovah's Witnesses is, is one. Mm-hmm. Tangentially, but yes. Well, why don't you explain that relationship? Well, I've never gone into it much. All I know is that the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses was an Adventist in the 1870s, I believe, and then he went his own way. So yes, in a sense, I think you could say that that is correct. In the 1840s and 50s, there were many, many branches of Adventism established. Six of them survived for a few years, and there were many splits within them and then merges beyond counting. And then only three of them that came from the original Millerism have survived to this day. One of them, of course, was the Advent Christian Church that my grandfather and his ancestors belonged to. And it has about 20,000 members today, mostly in the United States. Second one is the Church of God Seventh Day, which meets on Saturdays. And it has about 14,000 adherents today. And then, of course, the best known is the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is global. And its website says that it has about 20 million believers today. So I'm speaking with Eileen Maddox, author of the book 1844, Convergence and Prophecy for Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the Baha'i Faith. And I think we basically covered all of them. You spoke of the prophecy in uh, Daniel, which is the Jewish Bible. And then we talked about how that prophecy led to the date 1844 for the return of Christ, which was, was important for the Adventist movement in the 19th century. And then you mentioned also the prophecy in Daniel about the 1260 days for the return, and that corresponds, if you use the year 1260 in the Islamic calendar, which is a lunar-based calendar versus a solar-based calendar, that that also correlates to the year 1844. And then for the Baha'i Faith, of course, that is the birth demarcation for the Baha'i Faith, for it was the manifestation of God, the Bab, who was the herald to Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, that declared his mission in 1844. Now, Eileen, you had mentioned uh, to me before this interview that Miller had a dream that was significant. I was wondering if you could share that. Yes. It's a little long. I put it in the epilogue. I'm just going to read portions of it and paraphrase the rest. To begin with, I think the reason this is so important is Well, as I was writing this book, I became emotionally very close to William Miller. I totally respected him as a person. As the saying goes, he was as honest as the day was long. And he was as faithful to his beliefs as a person could be. At the end of the book, I had nothing but profound respect 
for him and the work that he did. And then when I was going through his memoirs and books written about his from his memoirs, I discovered a dream that he had in 1847, two years before he died, three years after the return of Christ had not occurred in the West as expected. Dreams are often showing us our spiritual way and giving us spiritual guidance. And it can be a little dangerous to try to interpret someone else's dream. So I didn't interpret it, but I felt that the meaning was so obvious and that it was given to him as a comfort. That's how I'll explain it. And here's the dream. Miller had remained stalwart in his Adventist faith, as we had discussed. I dreamed that God, by an unseen hand, sent me a curiously wrought casket, about eight inches by six inches square, made of ebony and pearls, inlaid to the casket. There was a key. I took the key and opened the casket, when to my wonder and surprise, I found it filled with all sorts and sizes of jewels, diamonds, and precious stones, and gold and silver of every dimension and value, beautifully arranged within the casket, and they shed a wonderful light and glory equal only by the sun. I thought it was my duty not to enjoy this wonderful sight alone, although my heart was overjoyed at its brilliance, beauty, and value. Therefore, I placed it on a table, and I gave out word that all who had a desire might come and see this most glorious and brilliant sight ever seen by man in this life. The people began to come, at first a few and then many. First they looked and wondered and shouted for joy, but then they became unruly. Everyone would begin to trouble the jewels, taking them out of the casket and scattering them on the table. He goes on to explain how the crowds of people treated the jewels with more and more disrespect and trampled on them. Not only trampled on them, but brought in a lot of dirt with them. They had no respect for what the jewels represented. Then his dream goes on. He says, I became wholly discouraged and disheartened and sat down and wept. While I was thus weeping and mourning for my great loss and accountability, I remembered God and earnestly prayed that he would send me help. Immediately the door opened and a man entered the room when the people had left. And he, having a dirt brush in his hand, opened the windows and began to brush the dust and rubbish from the room. I cried to him to forbear, for there were some precious jewels scattered among the rubbish. He told me to fear not, for he would take care of them. Then, while he brushed the dust and rubbish, false jewels and counterfeit coin all rose and went out of the windows like a cloud, and the wind carried them away. In the bustle, I closed my eyes for a moment. When I opened them, the rubbish was all gone. 
the precious jewels and diamonds, the gold and silver coins lay scattered. He then placed on the table a casket much larger and more beautiful than the former and gathered up the jewels, the diamonds, the coins by the handful and passed them into the casket till not one was left, although some of the diamonds were not bigger than the point of a pin. And he called out to me. I looked into the casket, but my eyes were dazzled with the sight. They're shown with ten times their former glory. I thought they had been scoured in the sand by the feet of those wicked persons who had scattered and trod them in the dust. They were arranged in beautiful order in the casket, every one in its place, without any visible pains of the man who cast them in. I shouted with every joy, and that shout woke me. The effect of this on my mind has been extremely consoling and happy. And again, we really don't have a right to interpret someone else's dream because that's personal to them. But my personal feeling is William Miller was indeed being consoled that the Millerite movement had indeed, the jewels he had presented had indeed been trodden with schism and a lot of weird theologies that emerged from it. But he was also shown something much greater to come. And as a Baha'i, I believe that the much larger casket with many, many more precious jewels and so forth was showing him the larger picture, which is that there have been many prophets of God and the return of each one of them is actually the next prophet of God, who, in a manner of speaking, sort of picks up where the other one left off, leaves off, and carries on the spiritual education of mankind. That's my take on it, and I sincerely hope that when William Miller passed over two years later, I hope that he did meet Jesus, and I hope that he was also shown the meaning of his dream and the larger reality of what he had spent his life working for. Eileen, thank you so much for sharing this remarkable story of this convergence of all these major religious traditions into a, a unity. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me. I was glad to do it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Eileen Maddox, author of 1844, Convergence and Prophecy for Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and the Baha'i Faith. You can find this interview and other interviews on abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
When righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride, then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world. From age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion. A descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom and conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Glory, the glory of God, 
In the Holy Quran, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp. The lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were, a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light. And of all things, God is knowing.
Lord make us as waves of the sea and as the flowers that grow united and agree through thy love through thy love oh through thy love through thy love oh, oh. bind together all the hearts and join in accord of souls oh lord make all of mankind as the stars that shine from the same sky and as the perfect fruits that are growing high through thy love through thy love oh through thy love through thy love oh, oh. let us bind together all the hearts and join in a
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.